And if you were to read through the book, you would see this, this growing uh, confidence in Job, or in, in chapter 9, he, he begins to, to uh, contemplate the idea that there might be some sort of mediator who would lay his hands both on God and on man, so that Job could be righteous before him, so that there could be someone who would have affinity both with God in heaven and also man down on earth and would be able to, to bridge the chasm between them. And that first contemplation that he has of that in chapter 9, but it begins to grow so that in chapter 16, Job says that there is one, a son of man in heaven, who would plead for him as the Son of Man pleads for his friend. That he has one in the courts of heaven who is his friend and who sympathizes with him and cares for him. And that, that growing confidence from chapter 9 to, to chapter 16, we see something of it in, in chapter 14 as well, really, it really comes to this great climax in Job chapter 19 in those very familiar words where Job says, I know, now the assurance that Job has, I know that my Redeemer lives. Remember, Redeemer is, is someone like Boaz in the book of Ruth, who is a, a kinsman, a sort of, 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 of flesh and blood, who has uh, something in common with the one in whose place he is standing. And Job goes on to confess that this Redeemer is a divine Redeemer who will stand in his place and make intercession between the Father and between Job, his afflicted servant. But as, as this hope continues to well up within Job, his friends continue to deny it over and over. In fact, angrily. They mock him. They accuse him. They say things that are blatantly false. And that denial of any hope for a redeemer is really what we have here in chapter 25 from Job's friend Bildad, where he sets before Job uh, two things. He sets before him the sovereignty of God in these first couple of verses in Job 25. And then in the last few verses, he sets before Job a reminder of the sinfulness of man, the sovereignty of God and the sinfulness of man, and, and basically says, Job, there is no way that you could be righteous before him. Bildad understands God's sovereign majesty in such a way that he is so distant from his creatures that there is no possibility of a sinner ever being justified before God. But Job, on the other hand, recognizes that the absence of gospel hope from Bildad's system of theology brings no comfort and also that it doesn't really account for the greatness and sovereignty and majesty of God in being able to do things even beyond what we're able to comprehend. And so really what we have in these two chapters is a side-by-side a -side comparison of the graceless system of Bildad and his friends that they have inherited from the traditions of their fathers. And then on the other hand, a faint gospel hope in the words of Job that show just how great is the chasm between the system of his friends and the gospel of his Redeemer. We'll look at those two things this morning side by side. First, the system of Job's friends. 
We see this well summarizes, uh, summarized well, encapsulated in, in Bildad's denial of gospel hope, where he, he sets before Job two things with, with one implication. The first thing he says, the first point that he makes, is that God is sovereign. Again, you see that in verses 1 to 3, or especially verses 2 and 3, where, where Bildad then sort of, sort of bolsters his claim that God is sovereign with four reasons. Four reasons why that is so. And so you see in verse 2 that kind of theme statement, dominion and fear belong to God. Dominion and fear are with him. Now the first reason that Bildad gives to support this, the first reason why dominion and fear and glory and sovereignty are with God is because he dwells in the highest heights. You see that at the end of verse 2, where it speaks of God being in his high heaven. This is not unlike what we sang from Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. So this is what Bildad is reminding Job, that God's very location in the heavens testifies to his greatness and to his sovereign majesty and to the separation between God and man. And then second, while this God is in the heavens, he makes peace. You see that in that same line at the end of verse 2. That God is a God of perfect order, And perfect peace, who is in control of every little thing, doing his will both in heaven and on earth. The implication seems to be that there is no disorder in God's good creation, but everything is in its place. Everything is how it's supposed to be, including Job, suffering for sin. And so he should not question this God who brings peace. The next argument Bildad makes for God's complete sovereignty is regarding his numberless armies, which are mentioned in verse 3. Is there any number to his armies? Bildad is saying, Job, you can see just how great God is from how great and how innumerable his heavenly host is. Which may refer to his angelic host, or may actually refer to the stars, which Bildad will go on to mention in verse 5. He's just mentioned the heavens, which include the sky and the galaxies, and he will go on in the rest of verse 3 to speak of, of God's light. And so it may be the case that the armies Bildad is referring to are the starry host by which God, according to Genesis 1, governs the night and governs the day. They are the means by which God exercises this sovereign dominion of verse 2, the means by which he makes peace from his high heaven and causes his light to rise. So it seems what Bildad is doing is he's pointing to the starry host in creation, which are are one of the means by which God has dominion over the created order, and he's saying their brightness, the brightness of the stars in the heavens, the brightness of, of the sun, even of the moon, their brightness and their beauty and their glory, all of those things are but a faint reflection of God's brightness, of God's beauty, and of God's glory. And he's saying the fact that these heavenly hosts cannot be numbered only further testifies to God's greatness. That's the third reason Bildad gives for why God is completely and utterly sovereign. Because he dwells in the heavens, while there he makes peace, 
And his armies, by which he does that, are innumerable. Then the fourth reason Bildad gives really flows from that third reason, the end of verse 3, where he says, Upon whom does his light not arise? These heavenly hosts, by which God makes peace in his high places, shine over all people in all places for all time. He's saying God is God over all. Nothing is outside of his control, but dominion and fear belong to him. So that's Bildad's point about the sovereignty of God. And then he he moves in verses 4 to 6 to consider the sinfulness of man. Out of this grand and majestic view of the God of the heavens proceeds a very small view of man, which Bildad goes on to articulate with that question, how then can man be righteous before God? This is really the turning point of Bildad's argument. In fact, this falls directly in the middle of his speech. He's saying, if God really is the universal king with sovereign dominion, making peace by his heavenly host, which cannot be numbered, then what about man? How can man be righteous before this great and awesome God? He's saying, if everything that I just said in verses 1, 2, and 3 is true, Job, then what right do you have to stand in the presence of this almighty God and demand that you get justice? What right do you have to question him? And what hope do you have of ever being justified before him? If you were to be reading through the book of Job, this is, this is really what Job has been getting at in chapters 23 and 24. As he's longing for justice, and, and he desires to come before God and make his case and be justified. But Bildad is saying there's no way. There's no chance, Job. How could man ever be righteous before God? And this is really the same question that, that their other friend Eliphaz asked in chapter 15, where he said, What is man that he could be pure, and he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? Eliphaz said, Even the heavens are not pure in God's sight, so how much less man? And build that here in verses 4 and 5 says almost the exact same thing. What he's doing is, is he's appealing to a, a kind of a, a doctrine of total depravity. And he's saying, Job, because you were born to sinful parents, that line born of a woman, because you were born to sinful parents, you have therefore inherited your first parent's sinful nature. And by virtue of that sinful nature, you are not and cannot be righteous before God. So he's in some ways affirming what we do in Lord's Day 3, that from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. And that he's right. The problem is he he will fail to ever get past Lord's Days 3 and 4 and ever make it to the mediator of Lord's Day 5. But he is at least right in in much of what he says about our corrupt nature. He will go on, then, to argue from the lesser to the greater, if if not even the the moon and the stars that I just mentioned in verses 2 and 3. The moon and the stars by which God governs the night and governs the day, if not even they are pure in God's eyes, then how much less you? 
And how could you, Job, ever stand pure in his sight? Compared to God, even even the moon is not bright. The the Middle Eastern moon, which shines more brightly than you or I could even imagine. Well, it's saying even that, it has nothing in his eyes. The stars are not pure in his sight, meaning all of those things that from a human vantage point seem perfect, glorious, and unblemished, even they are as nothing before God. They're not pure. They're not bright. And neither are you, Job. For the stars are purer and brighter than you, yet before God are nothing, and therefore so are you. That's why Bildad calls him a worm and a maggot in verse 6. In fact, he says we all are. How much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? And with that, Bildad speaks his final words and final words of the three comforters in the whole book. Really bringing their argument full circle, just as Eliphaz denied in chapter 5 that there could ever be a mediator, just as Zophar is infuriated in chapter 20 in response to Job's suggestion of a redeemer who would stand in his place. So Bildad closes off their whole argument with a denial of the possibility of any bridge between the chasm of the great and glorious God of verses 2 and 3 and the filthy, slimy, dirty, insignificant, worm-like man of verse 6. This is why I speak of of Bildad's speech as a denial of gospel hope. Because what Bildad the Shuhite does is he emphasizes the sovereignty of God. He emphasizes the sinfulness of man, but he does so in such a way that leaves no room for the sympathetic Savior who will see Job in his plight and come down to save him. This is the prophetic longing that the Spirit has been working in Job's heart ever since chapter 9. The the prophetic longing that grew to that great confession that, that he makes in chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. But Bildad will have none of it. And the implication is that there is no hope of salvation. Verse 4, you cannot be righteous before God. It's a nice summary of of the system of Bildad and his friends, their grace-free philosophy of religion by which they prefigure the Pharisees and the enemies of the cross, the enemies of the gospel in the New Testament. But as Job points out in chapter 26, they've got it all wrong. There in chapter 26, we see Job's refutation of the wisdom of Bildad as he points, though yet through a glass dimly, to the gospel hope that Bildad has completely missed. And because he's completely missed it, Job tells him at the beginning of chapter 26, there is no comfort in your system. There is no comfort in your grace-free philosophy of religion. You, you set out back in chapter 2, verse 11, to, to comfort me and sympathize with me and mourn with me. But how have you done that? Verse 2, how have you helped him who has no power? Or how have you saved the arm that has no strength? Job is saying, I'm just lying here in the ash heap. My ten children have died. 
My own breath is a stench to my wife, my skin, he'll, he'll say a couple chap- chapters later in, in chapter 30, my own skin has turned black and is falling off from my flesh. I've become a, a, a byword and a taunting song even among the drunkards and the little children. In the midst of all of this, I have little, little sense of the smile of God upon me. In fact, it feels like he's forsaken me. And yet I still love him. And I still trust that he's good. That's why I keep coming to him with these prayers of lament, seeking to do business with him, because I I still love him and I still long to be right with him. And I'm looking for some token of comfort. But you have denied me any such comfort. For as you and I know, our only comfort in life and in death, is that we belong to our faithful Savior and Redeemer, but Bildad has denied any such hope. And so Job rebukes him in verses 2 through 4. You have failed to give the one thing that would help, and you have therefore failed in your mission to help him who is without power and to save the arm that has no strength. You and your friends, you keep saying that I have no wisdom, but how have you counseled me? How have you made me any wiser, Bildad? How how have you declared sound advice to me? Job is saying you haven't. So asks in verse 4, With whose help then have you uttered these words? And whose breath or, or whose spirit has come out of you? You and your friends have been making all throughout the book these claims to be speaking on God's behalf, but that doesn't smell like God's breath. Howell Jones, uh, one, one commentator, says it's like Job is able to smell the foul breath of the old dragon on Bildad's lips and knows that he and his friends are not speaking for God. Or Derek Thomas, the, the spirit who has inspired Bildad's words is Satan's, who is trying to extinguish any gospel hope within him and to get Job to deny God, as he's been trying to do ever since chapter 1. So he's now making use of the arguments of these three friends to seek to do that. They have become the mouthpiece of Satan. See, Satan sometimes comes as an angel of light. Satan sometimes comes quoting scripture. He sometimes comes with doctrinal assertions that are at least partly true, as in chapter 25, but is ultimately seeking to steal, kill, and destroy by denying the comfort of the gospel and therefore denying salvation, verse 2, to him who has no strength. Christopher Ashe says the proof that the theological system of the friends is bankrupt is precisely that it has no power to save. That's what Job says in verse 2. How have you saved the arm that has no strength? The proof that this system is bankrupt and empty is that it has no power to save. For only the message of the cross has power to help the helpless and to save the arm that has no strength. And it is that gospel hope that Job then points us to in the rest of the chapter, though ever so dimly. In verses 5 to 10, he basically finishes 
uh, Bildad's speech by affirming that dominion and fear do indeed belong to God, that God is, is sovereign even over death and hell, verses 5 and 6, that he maintains the created order, verses 7 through 10, where Job speaks of, of God um, stretching out the heavens, which, which are referred to in the ESV as, as the north, um, hanging the earth on, on nothing, uh, binding up the water in thick clouds, and then drawing a circle around the waters to divide the light and the darkness. And so Job is, is really giving this beautiful poetic description of God's act of creation, of which we read in Genesis 1. And Job is affirming that dominion and fear do indeed belong to God, and, and yes, he makes peace in his high places. His high places from which, verse 9, he is separate from his creation. There it says that he covers the face of his throne, um, some translations, as, as uh, the ESV that you have before you, some translations say that he, he covers the face of the full moon. But the idea here is that the sight of God's throne, not the full moon, but God's throne in heaven, the sight of it is enclosed in this, this mass of clouds so that no creature is able to behold his glory. What Job is here saying is a little bit like what Bildad says in 25 verse 5. That God is so separate from his creatures. That even the beautiful brightness of the stars and the galaxies may not behold his glory. As you see, Job is able to affirm much of what Bildad has said. But then starting in verse 11, he begins to uh, differentiate his system from that of Bildad's. There, uh, Job speaks of the pillars of heaven, you see in verse 11, trembling, being astounded or astonished at God's rebuke. And so this creation of verses 7 through 10, over which God makes peace, this created order that Job has just described, now he says that God shakes with his rebuke. What he's saying is... is Bildad, the reality is that this sovereign God that you've just described sometimes shakes the ordered predictability of creation. And the reason he does, verses 12 and 13, has to do with the forces of evil that God is overcoming. Or in verse 12, he speaks of, of the power of the sea, often a symbol of chaos. And he speaks of Rahab, which God will shatter. Um, some translations there say that the storm, but, but the ESV rightly renders that Rahab, which in the ancient Near East is a symbol of cosmic evil, referred to in verse 13 as the fleeing serpent. Uh, Rahab and, and Leviathan are uh, synonymous in the Old Testament. In fact, they'll come up again in chapter 41, where this great sea monster is described as the king over all the sons of pride on earth is not his equal. It is a dragon-like depiction of Satan. And so Job is making the point that the reason why God sometimes shakes the ordered predictability of creation is because of the presence of evil and the presence of, of, of the serpent, of Satan, of Leviathan, whom he will pierce and shatter. And will do, throw, do so through that very disordering. You see what Job is saying? 
He's saying, Bildad, you have not accounted for the fact that God sometimes shakes up the ordered predictability of creation as part of his subduing cosmic evil. He's saying God's sovereignty, which you and I both affirm, Bildad, does does not simply mean his, his upholding the expected order of creation where good things always happen to people who are good and bad things only happen to those who have sinned. What, what Bildad really is getting at when he speaks of, of peace that God makes in 25 verse 2. Job is saying it goes beyond that. God's sovereignty goes beyond just, just the upholding of the expected order of creation that you've been advocating your system where good things always happen to those who are good and bad things only happen to those who are bad, but it goes beyond that. One commentator says, Job has grasped that the problem and threat of evil is of such a magnitude that its destruction will involve a shaking that goes to the very core of creation. A shaking that throughout the whole book of Job is being anticipated and embodied in his own innocent sufferings. God's eventual overcoming of all evil and of this serpent, this fleeing serpent whom he will pierce, will be through the suffering of his son. And it is uh, that suffering that is being anticipated and prefigured and and, uh, prophetically depicted all throughout the book of Job. As God takes this suffering servant Job to silence the accuser through his faithful suffering. That's what's being depicted all throughout this book. Problem and threat of evil of such a magnitude that its destruction will involve a shaking that goes to the very core of creation, a shaking that is embodied and anticipated in Job's own innocent sufferings, a shaking that will finally be fulfilled only when the earth will quake at the cross and there will be darkness at noon. As the innocent man to whom Job points will suffer. And Job only sees this final ending yet through a glass dimly, but this is the prophetic logic of his response to Bildad. He concludes in verse 14 by affirming that God's wisdom goes beyond anything that we are able to perceive in creation and providence. Saying, Bildad, you have only scratched the surface. Verse 14, you have only touched the mere edges of God's ways. Job says we have only heard a whisper of him. For the thunder of God's power and of God's wisdom will only be fully and finally revealed when the created order is so shaken that the creator himself will go to the cross and the earth will be covered in darkness. It is in that that God's power and God's glory will be ultimately revealed. Which Bildad completely misses. He misses that the way God will overcome the serpent, the way that God will overcome Satan's sin and death, the way that God will pierce the fleeing serpent and lay Sheol and Abaddon naked is through the innocent suffering of his son whom Job prefigures. 
He misses that the great chasm between the high and holy God of Job 25, verses 1 to 3, and the small and filthy worm of Job 25, 4 through 6, will be bridged by the divine Son of Man, who is born of a woman, fulfilling the very language of Bildad's speech, assuming our humanity and crying out of the cross as we sang from Psalm 22, I am a worm and not a man. Despised by men reproach the people, even forsaken by his Father. And it is in that, in the suffering of the Christ, that the chasm will be bridged between God and man, and man will be able to be righteous before God. The answer to Job's problem is the mediator for whom he's been longing. The answer to Job's problem is the mediator for whom he's been longing, whose whose innocent suffering will crush the serpent and make man blessed, righteous before God. And it's only that good gospel news that can help the one who is without power and save the arm that has no strength because our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to our faithful Savior who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and delivered me from the tyranny of the devil, the serpent, Leviathan. This, beloved, is the comfort that Job failed to receive from his friends. And they will receive the same rebuke from God in chapter 42 that they do from Job in chapter 26. And so as you think about the application of a passage like this, I want to give you four, uh, four things to take home. First, we have in the council of Bildad a prime example of how not to comfort a suffering saint. He does two things. He, he beats Job down with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And he reminds Job of his sin, as if to say, like Eliphaz in chapter 5, Job just recognize that God is sovereign and be happy that he corrects you and do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. He's saying don't rebel against God's sovereignty, but deal with it. And then his reminder of Job's sin in verses 4 to 6 reminds us of something Zophar said back in, in chapter 11 where he denied Job's innocence, rubbed his presumed sinfulness in Job's face, and said, Job, God exacts less of you than you deserve. He's taking it easy on you. Your guilt is, is, is such that you deserve far worse than all the calamity that's come upon you. He points to Job's sin as the great cause of his suffering. In fact, says you really deserve worse, so count yourself blessed. And in that way, Zophar and Bildad prefigure the countless moralists, even in the church, who will beat down the one who has no power and has no strength by blaming them for their suffering and rubbing their sin in their face. Or using the sovereignty of God like a mallet to shut them up, as Bildad tries to do in verses 2 and 3. Or Eliphaz in chapter 5. The first application of this passage is don't be a miserable comforter like Bildad by missing the good news of the gospel that is our only comfort. Do not opt for the system of the friends, their grace-free philosophy of religion to which we are sometimes prone to wander over to. 
Do not opt for that system as opposed to the comfort of the gospel. And then secondly, this is perhaps for those of you who who find yourselves suffering right now or perhaps in the near future will find yourselves going through trials, through difficulties. Recognize that the wisdom of God's power is often revealed through suffering. It's one of the things we see in the book of Job that we see in this passage. The wisdom of God's power and of his glory is often revealed through suffering. Through the shaking up of the created order to subdue evil, even as we see happening in the book of Job and happening at the cross of Christ. Understand that the wisdom of God's ways often involves the suffering of his people as part of his plan to trample Satan, Satan, sin, and death. And do not view your suffering then as evidence of God's displeasure. Recognize the fact that you are suffering does not mean God is displeased with you. But third, understand that even as God would subdue evil through the suffering of his son or through the suffering of his servant Job who typifies his son, that that continues to be the way that God works in this world as those who are united to Christ by faith are likewise called to share in his suffering. We see when we look at a passage like Philippians 3 or Romans 8 or Matthew 20, The book of Job calls us to have no disillusions about that fact, but to be prepared to share in the suffering of the one to whom Job points, the suffering of Christ. And then finally, as we do, as we share in the sufferings of our Lord, this passage calls us to recognize the comfort that God gives in the gospel where he knows our suffering because he has entered into it in his Son who much to Bildad's surprise would become the worm of Job 25.6, born of a woman, so that we, the little worms and maggots of Job 25.6, could ascend to the high heaven of Job 25.2, when evil will one day be fully vanquished, and the sea of Job 26.12 will be no more, but God will be with us, and will be our God, and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain, but the former things will have passed away, and God will be all in all. As we read Job 25 and Job 26 canonically within the whole context of of the whole Bible's story of redemption, that is the comfort God gives to help him who is without power and to save the arm that has no strength. He is not distant and aloof from us in our suffering, but he cares. That's why he gives us a book like Job. That's why he gives us the Psalms. Because God cares. Because he wants to give us comfort in the midst of our suffering, comfort in the knowledge that he will one day overcome evil through the very suffering of the one to whom Job points, the one Job anticipates, the very suffering of his son. To which we with Job and with the church throughout all the ages, respond by ascribing him glory and confessing with Job 25-2 that that the dominion and fear do indeed belong to God. And he is worthy because of all that he has done in his Son, of all our worship. Amen. Let us 
respond by standing to sing number 473, uh, By the Sea of Christmas.